0: So, we're continuing now looking at the book of Matthew, and it's been an interesting uh, chapter here with chapter 18 on this, on this theme of, of the heart of the Father and in the confrontation in the last chapter, or in the last passage rather. And here, particularly looking at forgiveness and the heart of the king to forgive the servant. And it's been an interesting time in the life of our church too, having gone through the peacemaker process, having Daniel Fender come and preach. And then landing naturally here in Matthew's Gospel, I think we can see God's providence and care and timing, even as we have been going through this sermon series through the Gospel of Matthew. One of my family's uh, favorite musicals, as I'm sure it is for many people right now, is Hamilton. And obviously, I'm um, very impressed by, you know, the retelling of Americans founding through these rap battles and so on, but what was most profound and what I don't think we expected was the forgiveness that was embodied in Eliza Hamilton, Alexander's wife. Eliza's confronted with the unimaginable decision to forgive her philandering husband was acts of adultery and betrayal. And it's unimaginable in where it falls in the musical because the audience still feels the heat of the curse that she's pronounced just moments prior when she says, you forfeit all the rights to my heart, you forfeit the place in our bed. And yet the next part of the musical, this emotional climax of the musical, we find this moment of profound release and beauty when she says this. There are moments that words don't reach. There is a grace that's too powerful to name. We push away what we do not understand. We push away the unimaginable. There, standing in the garden, Alexander by Eliza's side, she takes its hand. It's quiet uptown. Forgiveness, can you imagine? Forgiveness, can you imagine? We're never told about Eliza's thought process and moving from anger to forgiveness, only that Eliza forgives. Can you imagine? Remember a few years back, the Washington Post reported on the forgiveness that was extended to Dylan Roof, the mass shooter by Emanuel Church in South Carolina. The article said this in the Washington Post is that the relatives of the people slain inside of the historic African-American church in Charleston, South Carolina, earlier this week were able to speak directly to the accused gunman in his first court appearance on Friday. And one by one, those who chose to speak at a bond hearing did not turn to anger. Instead, while he remained impassive, they offered him forgiveness and said that they were praying for his soul, even as they described the pain of their losses. I forgive you, said Nadine Collier, the daughter of a 70-year-old woman that was shot. You took something very precious from me, and I will never speak to my mother again. I will never hold her again, but I forgive you. Have mercy on your soul. Listen to God's word. Then Peter came up to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times... Will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and for payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with me, with him, Have patience with me and I will repay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When the fellow servant saw that this had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is God's word for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you now as people that are broken and hurting, as people who every single one of us have been wronged by another human being in some way. And Father, we pray that through the preaching of your word, you would grant to us and bestow us the grace to forgive, to be long-suffering and patient. We pray that we would know and taste and see the profound and infinite grace that you have shown us through the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that it would grip us to such a profound degree that we would be free people. We ask all this through your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I should just say as a, as a uh, disclaimer at the beginning that pretty much all of the ideas in this sermon come from this book called Unpacking Forgiveness by Chris Bronze, and I would give this book away to you, but I love it so much I can't bear without it. So I commend this to you, though, if are thinking about this, this topic. And also, this commentary by Dale Bruner on Matthew is excellent. Everything he says about this chapter is, is very devotional in nature. So we're going to unpack this sermon under three headings. The first point is the need for forgiveness. And the first point here on the need for forgiveness in our scripture reading I had Lindsay read to us 1 Corinthians thirteen four through 7, that profound chapter about love. But what's interesting is that prior to that, Paul makes this rebuke of sorts to the Corinthians. He says this, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to move mountains but not love, I'm nothing. And he goes on. And the point that Paul is making is that we as people can possess certain character virtues, but if they're not from a source that's rooted and grounded in love, then we're actually nothing. But he is saying that there is an ability, though, to possess these certain virtues, these certain aspects, apart from a heart that's been touched by the grace of Jesus Christ. It's possible for a season, for durations of life, to experience that kind of virtuous restraint. What do I mean by that? Uh, The way that we uh, most normally uh, teach moral virtue, for example, teaching our kids not to lie, is we apply moral categories to them. And we, in a sense, play on the fears and insecurities of the heart. We say, don't lie, because you don't want to be a liar. People don't like liars. And we play on this fear and insecurity in their heart that people aren't going to like them if they lie or we do it in a religious way sometimes too we say don't be a liar because god hates liars but what we're doing in those moments is we're playing on the fears and insecurities of their hearts we're trying to morally change people and paul says that that's possible in 1 corinthians 13 and it can be done apart from the, the, the grace that comes from jesus christ apart from a loving heart but you see what the problem is of course is the other side of the coin. Because why do people lie? (laughs) Because of the fears and insecurities of our heart. We lie because of fear of of losing power, of, of losing face, of losing an opportunity, and so we distort the truth. We lie. Both are based on the fears and insecurities of the heart. Not a heart, though, that's truly and actually been changed. Moral virtue can only restrain the heart. Moral virtue cannot change the heart. Only a touch from the grace of Jesus Christ can actually change the heart. So what does it look like? What does a heart look like that's been changed, that's been touched by the grace of Jesus Christ? Well, the first thing he says here is love is patient. Love is patient. And that word patient is... Maybe better translated in the King James, long-suffering. Love bears up under injury. It's a word that's occurred in almost all the lists in the New Testament of marks of a supernaturally changed heart. It's in Colossians chapter 3, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, the same Greek word, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all things, things put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. In Galatians 5, when Paul lists out the fruit of the Spirit, he says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Same Greek word. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And the first thing, we must know about this is that these lists are marks, they're traits, they're characteristics of a supernaturally changed heart. They're describing what it looks like. They're describing what a heart, what a life, what a soul looks like that's been touched by the grace of Jesus Christ. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is. As the Holy Spirit is manifest in living through you, that's what it looks like. It's important to know... <laughs> Because at the end of this passage here, in verse 35, it says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now at first, that sounds like all of a sudden we decided to stop preaching the gospel to this church, right? That we're saved by forgiveness. That if you don't forgive, then God won't save you. But if we see it that way, we're totally misunderstanding it. Instead, it's describing what a supernaturally changed heart looks like. A heart that has been touched by the grace of Jesus Christ and understands the depth and degree to which you've been forgiven by God manifests itself in a forgiving heart towards your brothers and your sisters. He's just describing what a heart looks like that's touched by Jesus. But the second thing we need to know is we understand this word patience a little bit more because it occurs, the reason I'm talking about it so much, this word patience, this word long-suffering, is because it's exactly what the servant asks for in this parable. Verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. The same word. Be patient with me. And the word, like I said, Quite literally, looks like long suffering. To understand, though, what this servant is really asking for, I need to explain something to you. Verse 23 and 24 says Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. Now, that might just kind of brush across the surface real fast, okay? Just one of those Bible words, one of those Bible numbers, dollar amounts. But let me try to explain this very briefly. A day's wage, a day's wage is about a denarius, okay? One talent is 6,000 denarius, denarii. And this is 10,000 talents, I went to Bible college. I'm not a math major, right? But I can do simple math with a calculator. Let's just say, for the sake of discussion, a day's wage is $100. And that's 6,000 of them is one talent. That means that this servant owed $600 billion. $600 billion. (laughs) One commentator said that this is the closest thing in the Bible to sounding like a five-year-old who says, you owe me a zillion dollars. <laughs> it's that extravagant. And the point that Jesus is making here is that this is an extreme amount of money. This is an extreme kind of debt here. The point that he's making is this is not just one of the hired hands. This is not just, just, this is not just someone who, you know, washed the carriage, Right? Shined up the chariot. This is someone who was probably the vice-regent in the entire kingdom. And he's coming to the king, basically saying, I have mismanaged, I have squandered the entire nation's wealth. It's gone. He's coming to him saying, 600 billion dollars of yours is gone. Have patience with me. (laughs) Be patient means to bear up under provocation without complaint. To bear up under provocation without complaint. That's what he was asking for, and that's what he got. The king is patient with him. We'll look more at the mechanics of this forgiveness here. In a moment. But this is the word, this word for patience is the word that where Paul is, is, is addressing church leadership in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, We urge you, brothers, to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint hearted, to help the weak, and to be patient with them all. To be patient with everyone in the church. To bear up under provocation without complaint. Look at the king in this parable. Verse 26 and 27. He says, Have, uh, the, 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 the servant says, Have patience with me and I will repay you. And out of pity, the master of the servant released him and forgave the debt. Okay, first of all, <laughs> the first thing is that there's no way that that debt was ever going to be repaid. Have patience with me and I'll repay the debt. That's not going to happen. You can be as patient as you want. You can wait your whole life. The guy's not going to make $600 billion back. Okay? But the second thing that I want to look at for a moment, what's instructive to us, is to look at the king's poise. He's basically been told it's over. He's basically just been told, the kingdom, all of it, it's done. Roll up shop. Go to someone else's kingdom. But he has poise, he has pity, he has patience. So here's the principle, if you're taking notes. Patience is the ability to bear injury without melting down. Patience is the ability to bear injury without melting down. Or put another way, Patience is, is it's, it's a virtue that looks like things can happen to you on the outside but they do not destroy your inner poise or your inner joy. Things can happen to you as an external force pressed upon you but it doesn't ultimately destroy your inner poise or joy. That doesn't mean it's not hard. That doesn't mean that we're stoic in nature. It doesn't mean we don't feel the pain but it means that it doesn't do the ultimate thing. It doesn't ultimately rob us of our inner poison joy. We're not, put another way even, we're not controlled by what is being done to us. We're not controlled by what is being done or has been done to us. That's what the king embodies here. The king is not ultimately robbed of his inner poison joy because of what has been done to him on the outside. Even the squandering, even the squandering of all of his wealth, or a large portion of it, doesn't rob him of that patience. So what does it mean? What does it mean when we're talking about not being controlled by what's being done to us? Well, it means that things are going to be done to us. It means that suffering will come into our lives. Suffering will come into our lives. Suffering has come into many of your lives right now. Some of you are in the midst of these kinds of situations. In the midst of suffering situations. But this passage is talking about a specific kind of patience. And this passage is talking about a specific kind of suffering. Right? It's talking about... Patience, and it's talking about suffering that comes from other people. It's talking about a kind of suffering that is inflicted by other people wrongs, hurts, abuses, mistreatments, backstabbings, miscommunications about you, false testimony being waged about you. It's inflicted by other people. And long-suffering, patience is the way that the inner poise isn't lost. The way that the patience is manifested, the way that there is long-suffering is through the vehicle of forgiveness. Forgiveness is the way that this king is able to endure and able to, to, to lay hold of and to keep his inner poise. Forgiveness. Now, what happens right here when we think about this kind of issue um, is it's easy for us, it's easy for us to talk about um, a lot of different kinds of sins that manifest in our lives. It's, easy, it's easier to talk about other sins that manifest in our lives, like, like lust. We can know, it's, it's easier to identify that, we, that we're lusting after something or someone. But, but bitterness, bitterness is one of those issues that's very difficult for us to see, and it's very difficult for us to admit. Because we're admitting that somebody else has some kind of control over us. We're admitting that something that somebody has done to us on the outside, something that somebody has said, something that somebody has done, is actually affecting us. It's controlling us in some way. It's making us bitter. And that's difficult to admit. It's really difficult to admit that we... If to say, I struggle with bitterness. That's not something that generally gets shared around the accountability table, is it? I'm struggling with bitterness today. I'm bitter at somebody. Because you're admitting on some level, that the wrongs that this person has done to you is actually affecting you. That's hard to do. It's hard for me to do. But we would be, we would be wise to realize this notion of bitterness because the writer of Hebrews will tell us, he'll say, see to it, see to it. That no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and many become defiled. See, the Bible is always commending to our weakness, right? So if it's saying, see to it that none of you struggles with the root of bitterness, it means to us that it's easy for it to become some kind of under-the-surface subterranean issue in our lives, something that's controlling aspects of our lives, right? Even the example says it's a root of bitterness, okay? This, a couple of weeks ago, actually, I don't know how long ago, it was a month ago or something, uh, I, I took down a tree in our front yard, okay? And this tree is called uh, the tree uh, its nickname is a tree of heaven which couldn't be further from the truth of what i think should be called it should be called a tree of hell okay got john going a tree of hades all right this tree you've seen them they're around portland it's one of the only trees that you can cut down without a permit in the city of portland that's saying something about the city of trees okay right and when you cut it it stinks, it smells, they grow like 12 feet a year, okay, and you'll know it because if you go out into your lawn and all of a sudden you see those little palm branch things coming up, it's a tree of heaven. You got to pull that bad boy before it, that root of bitterness takes hold in your garden. But the thing about the tree of heaven is that when you, when you, when you, when you cut it down, you got to get a stump grinder out there right away. And grind that thing up. And even still, the stump grinder told me, you're still going to be dealing with this tree for years to come. Okay, That's why we're putting the house on the market. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> a root of bitterness. The point, the illustration I'm simply trying to make, is that it has a subterranean, where you don't see it, kind of effect in your life. And it's hard for us to admit the degree to which it controls us. Bitterness and unforgiveness is very hard for us to see. And in fact, they have such a, bitterness has this kind of effect on us where we actually develop a self-pity about ourselves. We, we, we feel bad for ourselves that the wrongs and the injuries have been done to us. That's one of the ways that the root of bitterness affects us. But think about the analogy. It affects other things. It says it's spreading like a root. That it's affecting our wife and our kids and our relationships. And I know this firsthand. We know firsthand what this root of bitterness does to us and does to the relationships around us. Look at the end of the parable. I'm just going to talk, just talk on this for a moment. Verse 34 says, And in his anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all the debt. Now that word jailer there is, is pretty soft. Uh, it's most often translated torturers. So, and in his anger, his master delivered him to the, to the torturers until he should pay all his debt. It means two things, at least. One, he is saying in an ultimate sense, I think that Jesus is talking about hell. He is saying that in the ultimate sense, if, if the grace of Jesus Christ hasn't touched your heart, and the mark of that is that you are a forgiving person, that ultimately, that will show that Jesus actually hasn't touched you and saved you. But second, I do think it means torture now as well. It means torturing now as well. I don't know if Chris, if you made this up or if, or if you got this somewhere, but you used to say that unforgiveness is a prison of your own making. Unforgiveness is a prison of your own making. It's torturing you now. It's having effects in your life now. The bitterness is spreading like a root in a subterranean where the eyes don't see it kind of way. And we all see this. We see it in our lives. We see people leave churches over this kind of stuff, over bitterness and unforgiveness. We see people end long relationships because of injury and so on. And it doesn't just affect you. It affects a lot of different people. It affects your wife. It affects your kids. It affects other people in the relationship. This root of bitterness springs up and it defiles many. It's a prison of your own making. It's a torture chamber That's locked from the inside. And the key to unlocking it is in your hands. The key to maintain that inner joy and poise, to bear up under the injury, to bear up under the suffering, is to forgive. Is to forgive. King James puts Luke 21, 19 like this. By patience you possess your souls. With patience you possess your souls. So that was point one. So let's talk in point two, how to forgive. Let's talk about some of the mechanics that we see in this passage about how we actually do it. And we're going to look at the master, the king here, in verse 26 and 27. It says, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. It says three things there, right? It says that out of pity, he released and he forgave. Pity, release, forgave. I'm going to do it a little bit different order. Uh, cancels the debt. He, he forgaves. He, he cancels, he forgave him the debt. Canceling the debt. Look, when we are, um, when we are wronged, when we are injured, when something comes at us from another person, it creates a kind of debt. It creates an emotional kind of debt oftentimes. And there really are two choices on how to deal with it. This debt that's there, okay? Because this is a parable, and Jesus is using this parable to talk about the way that forgiveness and injury actually looks in our lives. It creates a debt of sorts in our hearts. And there's really two ways to deal with it, right? Right? The first way is that we can make them pay or we can absorb it ourselves. I don't really think there's another option. The debt has to be paid in some way. Make them pay, and there there are a litany of ways that we do this. When someone wrongs us, when someone injures us, one thing that we do or I do is we avoid them. We avoid them. We just don't really want anything to do with them anymore. The things they've said, the things they've done, we just avoid them. We, we subtly determine if they're going to be at the next social function and we decide not to go because we know they're going to be there. And we're subtly punishing them for the debt that they've done to us. Or the other thing that I hate to admit that I do, that we sometimes do, is we quietly cheer at their shortcomings and failures. We subtly cheer at their shortcomings and their failures. Maybe somebody else makes the same complaint that we did about them. And we subtly, you know, it makes us feel a little better. It makes us feel a little better. Maybe they lose their job. Maybe something happens to them. Maybe another relationship breaks down in their lives. And we subtly feel better as a result. The debt's being paid down. We're making them pay the debt. Or we talk behind their backs. And we do it in the name of warning other people. We do it in the name of warning other people so that they don't cross this person's path either. And in doing so, the debt is subtly being paid down in our hearts. It actually does, we hate to admit it, but it actually does make us feel a little better, doesn't it? You feel a little better. It doesn't hurt quite as bad as it did. It subtly works, the debt goes down, but you know what? It's changing you. You don't have that inner poise and joy that the king has. In fact, the very wrong that was done to you begins to possess you. The very wrong that was done to you begins to possess you, and it actually makes you into the kind of person that you actually despise. The wrong that was done to you (laughs) becomes a tool, becomes a way in which you actually become like someone that you actually despise. It's doing something to you. It has a residual effects. It wasn't just this wrong that was done to you doesn't just become one wrong. It becomes a lifetime of wrongs because of what you let it do to you. There's one incident potentially or a few incidents or a few relationship has, just, has ongoing effects in your lives because it's actually changing you into the very person that you don't want to be. A root of bitterness defiles many. It works this way in churches. It works this way in families, avoiding people, not letting people be in relationship with one another. So yeah, the debt goes down. You feel a little bit better about yourself by snubbing the other person back. But it subtly changes you. The only other option is to bear the wrong yourself. The only option is to bear the wrong yourself and absorb the debt and forgive. You know, we oftentimes talk about forgiveness and we, 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 we get to the point of when we're ready to forgive when, we're, when, the, when, the, when the emotion and the feeling of forgiveness comes. But it works the opposite way. Forgiveness is a decision, it's a choice to absorb the wrong, absorb the debt yourself. Forgiveness and the feeling of for- the forgiveness starts in the moment that you choose to forgive, and the feeling of forgiveness, or of the debt actually going down, that comes maybe hours later, maybe weeks later, maybe months later, maybe even years later, down the road. But in that decision to absorb the wrong yourself, to pay down the debt yourself, it's a decision to not engage in the other things that we just talked about. To not just avoid the person. Paul says in Romans 12 that Lindsay read for us this morning, um, to live with one another. As much as it depends on you, live with one another. Uh, Just take it at face value. An act of forgiveness is not an act of separation. Living with one another, bearing with one another it's a decision that when someone begins to slander the person, you don't engage with it. And it feels it. You feel it. You feel yourself absorbing the wrong yourself. It's a decision to not let the insult, the injury, the suffering, the wrong continue to have ongoing effects in your life. To not make them pay, but you absorb it yourself. The second thing is have compassion. Or actually, in our passage here, it says he has pity. But the word there is the Greek word for compassion. It's the word that, that I, every time I get to it, I say it, right? It's splunk nitamai. It means that he was that you're moved in your inner person, that you're moved towards this person. You actually have compassion on this person. And this one, this one is begun in the last couple of years to be more profound to me personally. Because what it is, is that it's your heart actually going out to the person. And you begin to understand, to some degree, why people do what they do. You put yourself in their shoes and say, okay, if I was in a similar situation, I could see myself doing something like that. It's moved to compassion. It's moved to pity. You know, um, one of the things that we do, I'm sure a lot of you do, but one of the things that we do as a family at Thanksgiving is we go around and just we share what we're thankful for or we, or we share something that, that the Lord's done in our lives in the last year we just want to give Him praise and, and honor for it. And my brother shared something um, this year that I think embodies this idea of your heart going out to somebody. And he shared that that the Lord's given him a lot of freedom from bitterness against our mom, and for the way that we were we were brought up, and 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 different shortcomings and failures that she had, and he just expressed he was just giving gratitude to God that that kind of bitterness has begun to go away because he's able in some sense to put himself in her shoes, a single mom with three kids whose husband has left. Yeah, that would be really hard that would be really difficult and I could see myself he was expressing he could see himself doing some of the similar things that she did his heart's moved to compassion you know what it is? it's a decision to not caricature somebody it's a decision to not caricature somebody right? when we when we lie what do we say? well there, there, was, there were circumstances that you didn't understand if somebody else lies what do we say? They're a liar We caricature him they 're a liar he 's just a liar. But with ourselves, we understand that there's mitigating circumstances. We give ourselves way more grace, way more latitude when it comes to these kinds of situations. But somebody else, we caricature him. he 's a liar we 're not moved to compassion we 're not moved to pity for the other person. So that 's the first two. He cancels the debt, he has compassion. And it says that he released him. He released him. What does it mean to release him? Um, What we don't know in this passage, and I haven't said up to this point, what we don't know in this passage is where that great amount of money went. We don't know if it was just gross mismanagement. But we or we don't know if it was actually corruption that the guy stole it. The guy was using it, you know, in, in improper ways, or we we just don't know, okay? And it doesn't seem like the king actually is interested in figuring that out right away. He releases him. He releases him of the debt. And we talk a lot. And we hear this conversation a lot about the difference between repentance and reconciliation. We say things like, I don't want to forgive, I want justice. But there's a category here of releasing that I think is very helpful in understanding this, this very question. Okay? And it's a category that's in the book Peacemakers by Ken Sandy. And he calls it forensic versus relational forgiveness. Forensic versus relational forgiveness. And this forensic forgiveness is what I mean and what I think Jesus means here by releasing. That it's releasing the wrong. It's not holding the wrong against them in your heart and mind. You're free from it. They're free from it. You're free from it. The other side of the coin is that relational forgiveness. That restoring of the relationship. So my point is this, simply, that the releasing of the wrong comes and oftentimes needs to come before the person ever even apologizes. That's the forensic releasing of the wrong. Because let's just be honest. Sometimes people are never going to repent. They're never going to apologize. They're never going to come to you and ask for forgiveness. So what's your choice? To just allow that to, to control you and rule you and make you a bitter person? Or to release it? I think that's very practically what it means to release it. It's that forensic forgiveness. The relational forgiveness... Or what reconciliation looks like will look different in different situations, depending on the degree of the wrong. I mean, if we're talking, uh, you know, a a fight between brothers, then that's one thing. But if we're talking about, you know, serious accusations of abuse and so on, then reconciliation is going to look just very different in those situations. But the releasing, the releasing of the wrong is something that happens within your heart, within the human heart, That no longer harbors that bitterness, that injury. You may need to hold out the relational forgiveness for repentance and so on. Remembering where this passage falls, right? It's falling right after that church discipline passage. That we, as a people, as a congregation, should just be ready to pounce and ready to just offer that lavish forgiveness that's talked about when the shepherd rejoices over the one returning, right? To be able to do that, we have to have some hard work that's already been done on the front end. So that when those that have been disciplined by this church come back by God's grace, we are ready with open arms. The forgiveness has already, happened. We've already released him of the debt. And now it's just simply a relational reconciliation. And of course... This whole section starts because Peter asks, How many times do I need to do this? How many times? It was said in rabbinic law, based on a passage in Amos, that three times you forgive, and on the fourth, no more. And so commentators think that what Peter's doing here is he's just going over the top, lavish. Three, I'll double it, and I'll even add one to it. How about this, Jesus? Jesus? How many times should I forgive my brother? What do you say? Seven? Seven. I'll do it seven times. And Jesus says, You don't even understand the nature of my kingdom. He says 70 times seven, which doesn't mean we get to 491 and we stop. He's saying it's unending. It's that lavish. The forgiveness that we extend to one another is that lavish. Because point three, of course, is the grace to forgive how do we ever possibly do this how do we ever possibly cancel people's debts how do we ever actually have compassion on someone that's wronged us how is it to have your heart can go out to someone who's injured you and how can we actually release them because of course we know who the king is in this parable the king is the father The king is Jesus, the king is God. The king is the one who has canceled a debt that we don't even understand. Jesus Christ in this passage and in this place in Matthew, he's marching to Jerusalem. He's headed to Golgotha. He's headed to Calvary where he will shed his blood and pour out his blood for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus Christ the one who upholds the cosmos, will say on the cross, forgive them. They know not what they do. Forgive them. Enduring the jeers, the insults, the physical pain, the emotional pain, the spiritual pain of heaven itself being quiet to him. He will endure and in the midst of it, he will say, forgive them. This word, compassion, his heart went out to them, is the word that's used most about Jesus and any other emotional word. If you're going to describe the emotional life of Jesus, the word that comes up the most in the New Testament is compassion. That his heart is constantly going out to people, his heart is going out to you, his heart is going out to me. And he's actually, his heart is going out. Here's the the radical nature of the gospel. That even in our bitterness, because we are bitter. I'm bitter. I'm bitter at certain people. Even in that bitterness, Jesus is moved to compassion towards you. Towards us. To feel his love, his mercy, his grace, which is so outlandish, which is so over the top. But the degree to which we can begin to let it settle down into our hearts, we can regain that inner poise. We can have that joy, that love that the New Testament says has been poured out into our hearts. And even now, in our bitterness, in our unforgiveness, Jesus is moving towards you so that you would sense the gravity of his great love for you. So let's dwell on that as we go to the Lord's table. Let us pray. Father, we are so in need of your grace and love. It is so over the top. It is so beyond what we can even comprehend, the great love and mercy that you have for us. I pray now for these, this people and myself that that kind of love, mercy, would be poured into our hearts and we would be freed from these inner prisons that we experience. Things that our mothers have done to us, our fathers have done to us, our friends have done to us, church leaders have done to us, that we can open that door of unforgiveness. Because your grace and your love and your mercy have been poured into our hearts. Help us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.